0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. And I want to invite you today to join me in Revelation chapter three. This morning we are going to be concluding our series to the seven churches in Revelation. And so there are a couple things I realize uh, this Easter morning. The first is I just want to express extreme gratitude. Uh, to all of you for the support through this time of transition as our church is seeking out who the Lord would have for us to stand uh, as pastor next. And this is my very first Easter sermon, and I cannot think of a sweeter place that I would ever want to share that with. This is an incredible moment in my life, and I'm just so grateful to be able to share it with you all. But I also recognize that the deacons are taking a big chance in letting the youth pastor preach on Easter Sunday. So I'm thankful that they recognize that. The second thing is... One of the weights that I understand coming into this week is a lot of times um, there can be the idea of kind of going off the beaten path in sermon series and pulling up a specific or a special sermon that highlights the resurrection story from Scripture to preach on on Easter. And I feel that the Lord is leading us to this letter in Laodicea where it does highlight the resurrection, but perhaps in a way that you've never heard before. But one of the things I recognize is that out of all of the seven churches, This is the one church that doesn't receive any good news, which is a little intimidating if I'm honest, because I understand the nature of Easter with so many families gathering together, and this is a a sweet time where we get to see uh, people that maybe we don't get to see throughout the rest of the year, and now I'm preaching, hey guys, let's go through this passage with no good news in it at all. But what I hope that you see in this, in the midst of this letter to Laodicea, is that God has a specific word for us here this morning. And it focuses around the gospel. And my main point this morning, the one thing I want you to take away as we walk through this passage, is that the gospel requires a response. The gospel requires a response. The truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ requires a response from us. So, uh, we're in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 14 this morning, and before I read, I just want to take a moment and lay down some background for you so you understand what's going on in this passage. Laodicea was a city that was founded in the 3rd century BC. It was known as the chief city in the region. It was one of three cities with Hierapolis on one side and Colossae on the other side, and it sat at the junction of three major roads in the Roman Empire. Now, Laodicea was rich, and it was proud. It was dominated by a strong economy. Last week, Greg walked us through the letter to the church in the city of Philadelphia. One of the things he highlighted is that Philadelphia was ravaged by an earthquake, and one of the things that Philadelphia had to do, because it was so poor, was it had to reach out to the Roman Empire to receive money so that it might be able to rebuild itself. Now Laodicea had a similar circumstance and a natural disaster struck the city. uh, An earthquake struck that city in AD 60. The difference is Laodicea was so rich that it didn't have to reach out to the government for help. It rebuilt itself from its own financial support. There was enough money in the city that when the city was leveled, they just rebuilt. And they weren't short on change by any means. This was something that the city was proud of. They could support themselves. They didn't need help from anyone else. They had all the money and everything that they needed. In Scripture, we know that Paul never actually visited the city, but that the church in Laodicea was most likely planted by a, name, uh, a man named Epaphras. We see mention of the city in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul writes this, After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, in Scripture, in our Bibles, you'll notice that we don't actually have Paul's letter to Laodicea. We've lost it. We don't have it. But what we do know is that the church was planted by Epaphras. Paul encouraged it not only in the letter of Colossians, which was passed to them, but he also, to some degree, ministered to that city through his writings. But then we don't know much about it until we get to this letter here. And so we pick up in Revelation when Jesus is having letters written to seven specific churches to address the circumstances that they're in. And we're going to see what Jesus Christ has to say to the church at Laodicea this morning. So join me in Revelation chapter three. We're going to begin in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold, were that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So remember, the main point this morning is that the gospel requires a response. And so as we walk through these verses, we're going to see three realities of the church in Laodicea. Now, I've got to be honest, because it's Easter, I pulled out all the stops this morning. And so as a good Southern Baptist pastor would do, I have made alliteration for all of them. So we're going to see that they were bored with the gospel. We're going to see that they were blind and that they had been bought. You like that? Like the alliteration there? All right. So first point is we're going to see the church in Laodicea was bored. This letter is given to the church at Laodicea from the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. So Christ is identifying himself to the church in Laodicea as truth. Now this truth that he identifies himself as, this is not truth as in truth as opposed to falsehood. This is not truth in opposition to facts that are not true. Instead, Jesus' identity as truth is by very nature of who he is. He is the faithful and true witness. He keeps his promises and what he says comes to pass. This is not truth in opposition to falsehood, but truth is the very nature of who God is. Jesus Christ is truth. We also see that he is the originator of God's creation. He is the one through whom all things came to be. He is the word. John would write about this more in his gospel. In John chapter 1, he begins his gospel by describing Jesus in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In the very same letter that Paul had written to Colossae and had passed to Laodicea, he wrote this in Colossians 1.16 about Jesus. For everything was created by him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the beginner or the originator of God's creation. He is the one through whom all things were created. And in identifying himself this way, Jesus is saying that he was there at creation as a member of the triune God who spoke all things into existence. By saying this, Jesus is drawing our attention to the beginning of the gospel narrative that we celebrate today. See, this weekend, as we celebrated Good Friday and the death of Christ, and as we celebrate today the resurrection of Christ... Those events stand at the pinnacle of a much larger story that finds its beginning in creation when God spoke all things into being over the course of six days. For six days, there's this pattern, this repetition, almost like a, like a dance of sorts, where back and forth, God speaks things into being, it is, and so it is good. And again, God speaks things into being, it is, and it is good And in creation, we're reminded that everything truly is created good. It's created perfect. There is harmony. As God speaks things into creation, there is complete and perfect obedience. As God establishes light and dark, it is. As God separates the seas with land, it is. As he creates the birds of the air and the fish in the sea, they are. And there's perfect obedience, perfect harmony. There's perfection. Then on the sixth day, God crowns his creation with one made in his image. A creation made to experience perfect relationship with him, Adam. And as he looks at Adam, he wants to give Adam a gift, another picture of the relationship he was designed to have, and he gives him a helper, Eve. And Adam and Eve stand at the pinnacle of creation, a reminder of the community that we are designed to have perfect relationship with God. And in creation, we see a picture of that. And all the while... The second member of the Trinity, Jesus was participating in the creation event as a member of the triune God. So, what does Jesus, who is true, who is at the beginning, what does he have to say to this church? Well, it's not good news. In fact, as I said before, this is the only letter of the seven churches to to the churches in Revelation that does not receive a single word of good news It's not good at all. It's very, very bad news. The issue that the church in Laodicea faced wasn't false teaching like we've seen in many other letters leading up to this. It wasn't that they had persecution and were struggling to withstand it. Instead, their issue was far more dangerous than any of those things. Their issue was that they were bored with the gospel. They were bored with the gospel they had received. And Jesus uses this imagery in verses 15 and 16 of being cold or hot. He wishes that the church were either cold or hot. Instead, Jesus says they are lukewarm Christians, accustomed to the very faith they had claimed to receive. The very faith that they claimed to celebrate together. The good news was boring to them. They were used to it. They had heard it before. There was no power left in it to them While Laodicea was a rich and a strong city, it had a geographic issue it had to work around. You see, most cities historically are planted by strong streams of water or water is nearby. So that way you have water not only to drink but to transport goods and services. And that's why a lot of times we see that these stronger cities that have historic roots are planted by water. So a couple examples I think of is London and Paris. Both of those cities historically have had rivers running through them, major waterways that serve in essence as historical highways to move goods and services and provide water for the growing city and so everyone could have it a drink. Now Laodicea did not have that. Laodicea was kind of an anomaly because it had those three roads of the Roman highway that met in it and created an economic stronghold for them where goods and services could be traded, but the issue it had is it couldn't get water to its citizens. They had to think of a way to do it because there wasn't water nearby. The closest water source was eight miles away. Now, the cities around them, Hierapolis and Colossae, they didn't have that issue In fact, both of those cities, the two cities closest to Laodicea, were actually identified in some way by the water that was in the town. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. These hot springs were not only enjoyable to go and visit, and I'm sure sit in, but they served medical purposes as well. They had healing properties, and it made the water something of a trademark in that city. On the other side of Laodicea, Colossae was known for its cold water. That was good to drink. It was crisp. It, it was clear. It was cold. Then there's Laodicea in the middle. It had neither hot water nor cold water. Instead, the Roman Empire built aqueducts to carry water from the water source eight miles away. And by the time the water would move across these aqueducts and get into the city, it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm and disgusting. Maybe you've seen pictures of the aqueducts before, these tall structures that at times are kind of like bridges with archways in the middle of them. They would use these to transport the water. So by the time it got to the city, it was completely useless. You wouldn't want to drink it because it wasn't cold, but it wasn't hot enough to serve any purposes. So in my mind, one of the ways that we can think of this is about coffee. I love coffee, like absolutely adore it. So maybe for us, an easy way to think of it in our time, since we don't really know this lukewarm imagery, is with coffee. Coffee is really good hot and really good cold. But maybe if you're like me, you've been working on something and you got a cup of coffee and you've taken a few sips out of it. You set it to the side and some time passes and you don't realize how long it's been. So you grab the mug or the cup of coffee, go to take a drink, and it's lukewarm. And I would dare say that's probably one of the most disgusting tastes on the face of the planet. It is awful. It is hideous. And sometimes you kind of like spit it back in the mug and hope no one sees. Like it's, You don't want it in your mouth. You want to spit it out. And that is the imagery that Jesus is giving us of the church in Laodicea. It wasn't that hot was good or cold was bad. Jesus is saying, if only you were one of these. At least hot and cold are useful, but you're lukewarm like the water that you have to drink. And just as a normal reflex of a human being when drinking lukewarm water is to spit it out of our mouths, so Jesus says that is what he's going to do to the church in Laodicea. They resembled their water in their response to the gospel. They didn't do anything with it. The gospel wasn't good news to them. They didn't think about it as bad news. It just seems they forgot about it entirely. It was just there, news. Jesus is alive. Cool. They pushed it to the side, and they neglected it. I mean, think about this. In all the ways that we want our church to be identified, we want to be a church that makes a difference in the community. We want to be a church known for teaching the Bible accurately and passionately. The one thing we don't want to be identified as is the church that Jesus wants to spit out of his mouth. Like, imagine if you were inviting people to Easter service, and you're like, hey, guys, Come on out to Abner Creek. We're the church that Jesus wants to spit out of his mouth. Like, that's not good news. That's not what you want to be identified as. But Jesus is using such strong language for a purpose. Because judgment was coming. Which takes me to my second truth that we see of the church in Laodicea. They were blind. Jesus had to use strong language This spitting them out of his mouth imagery because the church was blind to their real issue. A conversation over coffee with the eldership, even from Jesus himself, probably wouldn't have worked to get the church to understand the danger they're in. conversation over coffee wouldn't be strong enough. Instead, they needed a strong word of warning. Stop. Danger is ahead. Do not continue on this path. You're in trouble. The church didn't recognize it, though. They had deceived themselves into thinking that they were okay when they weren't. Their spiritual blindness was rooted in their own efforts. See, remember I mentioned that an earthquake had ravaged the city and that they had rebuilt themselves under their own riches and financial ability. It seems that this attitude that came from that, that the city had, they didn't need anyone, is also the same attitude that made its way into the church This self-sustaining and prideful attitude. We can do it. We don't need any outside help. Look at us. We're Laodicea. We didn't have to get the help of the government when all these cities had to because we're strong enough on our own power and our own ability. And they thought that since they looked healthy on the outside, that they were spiritually healthy as well. Because after all, they had riches. Man, you need a mission trip? Funded. Need help planning a church? Funded. But in the middle of it all, they had grown to look more like the culture around them than they did their Savior who was supposed to be the center of it all. Now, this is speculation on my part, but one of the things that stood out to me as I read the letter and I think about it in contrast to the other six, is that there's no mention of persecution in the city of Laodicea. And in my research, I didn't find any. So this is, this is speculation here, but just hear me out for a moment. One of the things that probably struck the church and allowed them to fall into growing accustomed and bored with the gospel was the fact that they didn't face opposition. Think about it. A lot of times we can deceive ourselves into thinking that because things are smooth sailing, because we don't have any opposition, and everything seems to be going our way, that means we're heading in the right direction. But what we see in Scripture is that the gospel, by nature, is offensive. By nature, it's offensive. And so, if we are the church heralding the gospel to those around us, then we have to face opposition. It doesn't mean we're offending people on, on purpose, but, but consider that the gospel, the good news has bad news inherently written into it. It's offensive because it marks us all as sinners. And no one wants to be marked as that. There's this interesting reality that you face whenever you share the gospel. It's this reality that you face, especially with unbelievers of the gospel, that I understand. It's something that all of us face if we're honest and we examine our hearts. It's this reality that we have as humans where we recognize that something is wrong. Something's not right. It's something that everyone recognizes. Something is off here. Things aren't as they should be. But the interesting thing is, the one thing that can never be the issue is us. Yeah, something's wrong here. What could it be? It's something outside ourselves it's the structures put in place around us. It's society at large. It's government. It's the, the medical system isn't strong enough to cure all of the diseases that we face. It's these big picture ideas, but that's not what's wrong. We don't want to face the fact that we are the issue because of sin. When we look at sin through scripture, we see that it's the root issue. Not even a chapter after Adam and Eve are introduced into the picture, we see that sin enters the world. Whereas the rest of creation took its place exactly where God told it to, when we were given our place as the crowning jewel to be a picture of God in ruling and reigning over creation, we see that we decided that wasn't good enough. Whereas the rest of creation took its place was content and happy, saw the gift it was of existing in all of creation. The crowning jewel that God created, Adam and Eve, decided that wasn't good enough and committed an act of cosmic treason in attempting to overthrow God by going against his command. Eve ate the fruit because she saw it was pleasing to the eye and because she wanted to be like God. It wasn't good enough. God had created everything perfect, but we thought we could do a better job. And sin was introduced into the world, not only affecting creation as a whole, but affecting each and every one of us individually. Each and every one of us in this room, we are affected by sin. The reality is that in the big picture, sickness and death are introduced into the world because of sin. Work becomes difficult relationships become difficult because of the tension within them people want to hurt one another and kill one another much like we prayed about before the sermon started today these are all results of sin and individually we are separated from god because of our sin we inherit the sin nature of adam and we are born with that sin nature within us one of the things that I hope you understand, that I desperately try to teach every time I'm up here, because there's a reality to the gospel in it, is that we are not sinners because we sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Our hearts are sinful by nature. And the sins that we commit are a result of that. It's not that the bad actions that you do pollute your heart to a place where you need saved. It's the other way around. You commit sins because you are a sinner by nature. And we have to understand that because as long as we think that sins are just bad actions that make us good or bad people, we won't understand our need for a heart renewal. We'll just think that the issue is on the surface. And if we fix our actions, then we'll fix our hearts. But that's not the truth. This is a bigger deal than just doing bad things. Our sin separates us from God and is deserving of his wrath. God is holy. He is perfect. And our sin, our imperfection, cannot exist in the presence of holiness. This isn't a thing of arguing whether or not it can. By nature, the two are complete opposites. It's like arguing that darkness can exist in the presence of light. No one makes that argument because darkness by nature is the absence of light. So our sin is that absence of holiness and holiness. When sin is introduced into it, holiness consumes it. And this is a big issue because our sin separates us from God and earns us an eternity in hell. And our sin blinds us. It blinds us. It causes us to pursue things other than God. We look for satisfaction in our works and in our accomplishments alone. We pile up things around us, in our homes, things that we want that aren't necessarily bad by nature, but we add these levels and these layers of things to isolate ourselves, to make ourselves more comfortable so we don't ever have to think about the situation that we're in before God. We try to make a name for ourselves. We think if we can oppress enough people, make enough people jealous of us, then we will get satisfaction. And this reality that we recognize in our hearts, that things aren't right, will be solved. It will be fixed. This spiritual blindness plagued the church in Laodicea, so God called them out on it. Laodicea's identity was built around three things. And Jesus uses these three things to continue his word of warning. So we've talked about riches already, how the city's rebuilt itself And so Jesus, one of the images that he uses is he acknowledges that the town is rich and challenges them to buy riches or buy gold from him instead. The second thing that the city was built around was its textile industry. Laodicea was known for creating black cloth that would make very rich and expensive garments and carpets that were used in the Roman Empire. And Jesus points to those and tells them that instead of buying those riches... Uh, those cloths, those garments, to instead buy white garments of righteousness from him to cover their nakedness. This idea of nakedness is this idea of shame and guilt before God that we see introduced in the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. The last thing that Jesus uses is he uses this picture of eye salve or ointment. Laodicea had a medical college in the town. And the college was able to use this uh, Phrygian powder, to manufacture an eye salve that in the ancient Roman Empire would help with people who couldn't see well. It it served medicinal purposes and was actually useful in restoring some sight to people who couldn't see well. But the irony was that while this was the only city in the empire to create this eye salve, they thought they could see well, but they were spiritually blinder than any of the other churches around them. Jesus tells them instead to get his eye salve, to spread it onto their eyes that they might see that they might be rescued from the illusion of sin and recognize that they were in danger. Their eye salve couldn't save anything. So while the church was rich, while the church was well clothed, uh, had good sight physically, the opposite was true spiritually. No amount of gold or money that they had could get them into heaven. They couldn't walk into heaven on that day when they stand in judgment before Christ say, put it on my card. There's no amount of money. It's foolish to even think that any amount of $100 bills or gold bars you could hand to the Savior and bribe His way in because you're handing Him what's already His in the first place. He rules and reigns over all things, and everything that is here is his already. He's the one who spoke it into creation in the first place. You're handing back to him what's already his. There's no bargaining power in it. And Jesus says, instead of trying to bargain with me on your terms, on things that I already own, come to me. Receive gold from me instead. That is, receive salvation from me instead. They couldn't create clothes nice enough to manufacture the righteousness they needed. The nicest clothes on earth could not cover their sins. The nicest clothes on earth could not give them the righteousness they needed to stand before a holy God. It would be foolish to think that. So Jesus says to buy their clothes of righteousness from Him instead. And no amount of medical ointment could save them From their spiritual blindness it could not help them see the danger that they're in and their need for the gospel their need for christ so instead jesus tells them to get ointment to get eye salve from him instead so we see that the church was bored we see that the church was blind and lastly we see that the church was bought at this point it seems that Christ's words should be that's it. I've given you a chance and I'm done with you. I've given you the greatest news that you could have ever heard. I have provided salvation for you in no effort of your own, but of my own works and Jesus should look at them and say, I'm done. You're on your own now. But those aren't Jesus's words. Even in the midst of this letter full of bad news where Jesus doesn't find a single work that they're doing to encourage, he still loves them far too much not to warn them and to give them another chance. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline which reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, that says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The reality is that God loves us too much to ignore the danger that we are in. So he warns us, he tells us, he makes it known through his word that we are sinners and he provides the way of salvation. Jesus told them to come find the righteousness they need in Him, and He gives us the exact same invitation today, this very morning. Find your righteousness in Christ. Jesus is the only way to be saved. No amount of riches, nothing that we can manufacture. There is nothing we can do for ourselves to make our hearts right before God, but Jesus did it Himself. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place and today we celebrate that the payment was in full. This is the good news. This is the news that they were sitting on. This is the Gospel. The Creator who made everything good and perfect. The Creator whose creation turned against Him in sin when He was nothing but good to them is the same creator who sends his perfect son to live a perfect life die in our place and be raised again in galatians 4 paul writes that god did this in the fullness of time at the perfect time christ died in our place christ's perfect life is our righteousness his death is our payment. Christ was innocent. There was nothing obligating God to create a plan of salvation for us. There was absolutely nothing that he owed us, nothing that he should have given us, but because he is a good, merciful, and kind God, he sent his innocent, perfect son to live a life in our place and to die in our place. And this was so beautiful to Paul that he actually broke into song in Philippians chapter 2 and wrote one of the first hymns of the church. He writes this. This is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the story doesn't end there. Friday wouldn't be good Friday if there wasn't more to the story. And at the pinnacle of the gospel story, we see that the tomb is empty and that Christ was raised. This is the basis of our story because if Christ remained dead, if he died on the cross and that was the end of it, it would be no different than any other man dying. There would be no power in it. There would be no forgiveness for sins. Christ could not offer us any righteousness because he would be dead. But because the tomb is empty... It proves that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that the payment was in full. Death could not hold him in the grave. Paul continues his hymn and says that because Christ is raised, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is good news. This is good news. That they were bought by the blood of a perfect Savior. And this good news. That the tomb is empty. And there is forgiveness of sins. Is the very news that they were bored with. They sat on. They didn't do anything with it. The picture of the church in Laodicea is so bad, and it got to such a degree, that Jesus gives this imagery saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And now I remember hearing this verse growing up. And I remember hearing it as an invitation to unbelievers, saying, Jesus is knocking at the door of your hearts. Open up your hearts and let him in. But there's a problem with that understanding of the verses. Jesus isn't knocking on the door of unbelievers' hearts. He's knocking on the doors of the church. And that makes this a lot more dangerous for the church in Laodicea. Because the picture that's happening here is the church comes together to celebrate this good news, right? This good news that they've grown bored with. And so the service starts, everything's in place, everything's ready. And Jesus is still outside knocking on the doors of the church. Their service is going, and they don't even realize they are so blinded to the fact that the very Savior they're worshiping, He is, in essence, saying that he, they've forgotten about Him to such a degree that He's just not even there. He's locked outside. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If I ever get word from anyone that Jesus is knocking on the doors of Abner Creek Baptist Church, we're going to open the doors and let Jesus in, because that's what you do when Jesus knocks on the doors of the church. But they were this blind. They didn't realize they were missing it. But again, he immediately meets them with grace and invites them to a shared meal. Open the door and I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This shared meal in that culture would have reflected affection, confidence, and intimacy with them. Jesus was offering them relationship with him. Because the reward of the gospel is not that we get to be a better version of ourselves. That we receive new hearts and so we get to be the better you. The reward of the gospel isn't even heaven. The streets of gold... The things that we get to see in this perfect new creation that's to come. The reward is not even getting to see loved ones again. Those those are byproducts of the true reward. The reward of right relationship with Christ is right relationship with him. It's fellowship with him. It's knowing that he loves you, that he delights in you. That he desires community with you. It is fellowship with him. This is at the center of the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. Those other things, seeing loved ones again and getting eternity in heaven in the new creation with him, those are byproducts. But, Lord, save us from thinking that the gospel is something that we take and apply to ourselves so we can be a better person. Because if we're doing that, we're not doing anything different than the church at Laodicea did when it got the gospel and sat on it and thought, Ah, this is pretty cool, and I'm bored with it. This is not for self-betterment. This is for relationship with God. Relationship with Him. And so, because the gospel is true, it demands a response from us. Here's where I want to challenge you today. My main point was the gospel requires a response. By nature of what it is, because it is true, everyone in this room here today will respond to the gospel. If we've sinned against the God of creation, which we have, and if Jesus is the only way to be made right and to receive forgiveness of sins, which he is, then we must respond to the gospel. And all of us in this room today, whether we realize it or not, we will respond to the gospel. And we will respond in one of two ways. First, we'll respond positively. That's the first possibility. We will accept it. We will accept the truth for what it is and live our lives in light of it. For many of us, maybe we're already believers in Christ. And so what accepting the gospel here this morning looks like is yet another affirmation. Of this truth. Yet another opportunity for those of us who are believers to say, yes, thank you, God, praise to your name. That's the first way we can respond. The second is to respond negatively. To respond negatively, to reject it. Maybe you hear this gospel. Maybe it appeals to something in your heart, but you recognize you don't want it. That can't be true. So maybe you turn to other things to quiet the need that you know you have. Maybe you turn to works, to accomplishments. Maybe your attitude reflects that very attitude Jesus was addressing in the city of Laodicea. This, I could take care of it myself. I don't need the gospel. And hoping that while you turn to your works or accomplishments, at some point it will satisfy your soul. I remember once when I was a teenager, we were doing a service project in a supermarket in West Virginia. And we would go in and we would bag groceries at uh, one of the supermarkets that didn't have bag boys. And we would do it and not accept any financial things in return. Because what would happen is there would be oftentimes Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, and things like that, that would bag groceries and receive donations. And so we went in not accepting donations to help spark a conversation for the gospel. I think I was around 16 years old at this time, and I remember that I was bagging groceries for one guy who was coming through. I remember just saying, hey, I want to do this for you because Jesus loves you. He cares about you. He died for you, and there's forgiveness of sins found in his name. And I will never forget his response to me. It, it honestly haunts me to this day. He looked at me. He said, I don't need that. I've done enough, enough good things. I'll be fine. And maybe that's what you're trusting in today. Maybe you reject the gospel and you reject that Jesus is the only way to be saved because you don't want it. You don't want to believe it's true. And so instead, you're left offering up someone else's righteousness because if you move Jesus's righteousness out of the picture, maybe you even recognize that you need to be made right with God, but you don't want Jesus to be the way, then you have to offer up someone else's righteousness in order to have a bargaining chip to get into heaven. So what I mean by that is then you start to play the game of, well, I can't be condemned Because I'm not as bad as this guy. I haven't murdered anyone now. all right, I haven't done any of the big sins here. I've never cheated. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen anything from anyone. And so what you're doing there is trying to offer up someone else's righteousness so that maybe in light of that you can be seen as a little bit better and God will let you pass in. But that's not the measurement to which he holds your heart and compares it to. It's perfection. It's perfection. Our sin cannot exist within the holiness of god maybe your argument is well god is love and because god is love he can't condemn us for our sin a loving god wouldn't do that but in saying that god is love you are forgetting that god is holy he cannot change his nature his perfect holy nature and sin simply cannot exist in his presence without a solution Sin is consumed by holiness. Maybe you reject the gospel because you're putting it off until later. You think you'll deal with Jesus after the fun that you want to have, this fun that you think will satisfy you, because you think Jesus is a buzzkill taking all of the fun away. And you think in all of those activities that you want to do, all of the things that you want to do that Jesus wouldn't want you to do, you think fullness of life is found in those. And satisfaction for your hearts that know that something isn't right. When the entire time Jesus is inviting you to be satisfied in him. To walk in fullness of life with Him. Fullness of life and satisfaction is not found in those things. You cannot bring peace to your soul from anything else. Only from Christ. So my first challenge to you is, how have you responded to the gospel? My second challenge is for those of us in here who are believers. Church, what are we doing with the gospel message? What are we doing with the gospel message? As I've been preparing this week, one of the things I've been praying for is that you would understand the goodness of the gospel. You would understand just how incredible it is that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, that Jesus is the way to be saved, and that it would motivate you to understand, church, that if the gospel is truly this good, how can we keep it to ourselves? How can we not testify to salvation and fullness of life being found in Jesus if we really believe it's this good? My prayer has also been, as I think about you and as I was preparing, my prayer has been, church, that that God would help you to understand that He has uniquely wired each and every one of you And has placed you specifically where you are for the purpose of sharing with those around you. Whether you're at work, whether you're a student, a stay-at-home mom or dad, a homeschooler, a public schooler, as a grandparent, parent in retirement, wherever you are, God has placed you there and wired you to work there so that you would share the good news of Christ with those around you. See, this good news, the gospel, how we are wired as a church, is not dependent upon one person. Instead, it is all of us coming together as the body of Christ and all of us sharing the gospel. This doesn't mean that we rally around one, two, three staff people that we've hired to be the ones who are the load bearers of sharing the gospel. One of my favorite sports is basketball. I love the NBA. I love watching it. It's playoff season and it's incredible. This is the first season in about 15 years that LeBron James hasn't been in the playoffs. And it's crazy to think about. LeBron, I remember when he announced that he was going back to the Cleveland Cavaliers a few years ago, I thought it was insane. So basically the team that you had put together then was a really good player, LeBron James, one of the greatest of all time, and a bunch of other dudes that I couldn't name to this day it's like getting on the court with a bunch of like YMCA players and like bringing Michael Jordan on there and saying, all right, we're going to the finals. The thing about it was LeBron is so good that they went to the finals and they won it. LeBron by nature just kind of brings the team up to where he is. I share that with you because I fear that a lot of times that's what we think about Christianity and that's what we think about the gospel We need that one superstar gospel guy who's really good at X, Y, or Z. And when he comes in, then we'll be able to all team up around him. He'll be the one sharing the gospel and we can help him look good. And that is not what God has for us. God has uniquely wired and placed each and every one of you to share the gospel where you are. You have a purpose in that, first and foremost, to testify to the gospel and then to serve faithfully in those roles. This cannot be about one person carrying the weight while everyone else follows along blindly. That's not how this works. The gospel requires a response from us, both in responding positively, accepting it negatively and rejecting it, And also the gospel requires a response in that if we believe it's good news, we need to be sharing it with those around us. We can't keep it to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you that we get to come together each and every week and remind ourselves of what you've done for us in Christ. God, as we're here in this moment I pray, God, that you would help us to truly examine our hearts and see how we respond to the gospel. Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts and that if there are any of us in here who are blind to the, the dangerous situation that we're in separated from you, Spirit, I pray that you would open hearts to see and to respond in saving faith. God, today, would you find us faithful? And God, would you work in us to help us see how we need to respond? We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. We want to open up a time of response. Yes, because the gospel requires a response. But maybe in something that I've said today from the word of God, God's word is working on your heart. His spirit is moving in you and you recognize, maybe you recognize for the first time your need for him. Maybe you recognize that when you were six, seven, eight, however many years old at a VBS when you were a kid, you prayed a prayer, you got your hell insurance so you could go to heaven and you've never thought about it since. And every other time you've heard the gospel, you didn't realize that you were rejecting it until now. Maybe you recognize that you never actually responded to the gospel that time. You just prayed a prayer because you thought that was good. When Jesus is inviting you into relationship with him, Maybe you recognize, as a believer here, that there are opportunities that you've had to share and you just haven't taken advantage of it. Maybe it was too awkward. Maybe you were afraid, whatever it might be. We want to give you an opportunity to respond here this morning. If you're someone who recognizes your need for Jesus Christ and for his righteousness, then I want to invite you, as we sing a song of response, to come up here. Come talk to me. There will be no conversation I'll be happier to have with you than the conversation of follow Jesus. And I want to encourage you here this morning, don't worry about saving face or what people will think because maybe you've been walking through your whole life pretending like you've had Jesus when you realize this morning that you haven't. Don't worry about that. We would be happy to celebrate with you. Maybe you realize that you've never responded to the gospel and declaring it to others through the act of obedience and baptism. I'll be happy to talk with you about that as well. Or maybe you need to come kneel and use these stairs as an altar to take the posture of kneeling before God and to confess that you've let the gospel fall in by the wayside, that you've grown lukewarm to it, you've grown bored with it. And maybe you need to plead to God to renew the goodness of the gospel in your heart this morning. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, I beg of you, please, don't put it off. Respond as he would lead you this morning.